Howdy. It's Friday, and we are working for Crusoe, Sam Park, and John Ramey with you in a jam-packed episode of fascinating uh, international affairs, mostly international affairs, today, not as yes. much on the economic side today. A little bit. Uh, always a little bit, given uh, that we're talking about China and India, but let's start with uh, drama, drama for uh, the Russian Defense Ministry and the Wagner Group. Uh, how do we how do we classify the Wagner Group, Sam? They're like kind of a, an auxiliary, irregular Russian paramilitary force that has been fighting in Ukraine. I would rather classify them as a, a mercenary okay. organization because we they, got they don't just work for the Russians. They generally are thought to serve Russian interests. Well, not now. Right? Apparently not. No. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, has essentially descended into an all-out feud now with the Russian military. That's right. He is he according to him today, and this is on various media channels that he controls, Telegram, and I think that they've got, you know, video content on their website that they update frequently. Uh Prigozhin says that the Russian military has launched artillery strikes against the Wagner headquarters in Western Russia, near the Ukrainian border, in uh, uh, in the area around Rostov, uh, which is just east of the Ukrainian border and the Ukrainian region of Donetsk. And uh, now I think there's video on the website or something like that. But of course, you can find very easily video of shells landing somewhere, right? And people running away, you know, guys in uniform running away. And one thing we know about Prigozhin is that he says all the things, right? And you have no way of knowing what's actually happening based just upon what Prigozhin says. But he also went on to say that, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the entire rationale of the war was essentially concocted that there was never any plot of aggression of, uh, of the West and Ukraine against Russia. And so therefore, the special, special military operation that Russia is currently engaged in against Ukraine must have been launched for other reasons. Now, this is not the first time that, that Prigozhin has sparred with the Russian military high command by any stretch of the imagination. This has happened over and over again. This does seem to be sort of an escalation of that conflict. And Prigozhin has, again today, called for a march for justice, as he calls it, uh, against seemingly the military of Russia itself. Now, he's not calling for open rebellion against the whole government but he's kind of calling for a mutiny of sorts. It seems that way, yes. Now, that doesn't mean this is going to happen. By the way, uh, just to... No, my money's on no, that's not going to happen. I'm, I'm thinking it probably won't. Uh, the Russian military, for their part, have flatly denied any such attack against uh, the Wagner forces. And uh, for good measure, the Russian Internal Security Service, the FSB, has launched a criminal investigation against rush against uh Prigozhin. uh so best of that, luck Yevgeny 
Yeah, well, yeah, but of course. Internal that, affairs uh, with regard to Russia, notoriously unforgiving. Yes, but that, you know, but then he's like, if I was him, I'd be like, okay, well, just catch me then, right? I mean, uh, I've Just to zoom out, sorry to interrupt you, Sam, just to zoom out, let's say the Wagner Group and the Russian military completely have a falling out. It doesn't really impact Russia's ability to prosecute this war. Well, they would have to devote some sort of, for instance, Prigozhin made a point of saying that he has 25,000 troops in the region, right? Uh, so it's not with, nothing. Yeah, and and so exactly, right? I mean, you could, that uh, that would seem to be a surmountable force by the Russian military, but not easily, right? Uh, and, you know, then there's a question of what kind of loyalty does Prigozhin command amongst that 25,000, and we have no way of knowing the answer to that question. So basically what we've outlined thus far is about as much as we know. Uh, and so uh, I thought we should mention it just as a, a point of interest for our listeners going forward, because again, this is just breaking today. We don't know what's going to happen. It may turn out to be nothing, but it may not. That's all. All right. Yeah. Breaking news here on Friday, June 23rd, which I did not say at the top. Friday, June 23rd, 2023. Big stories this week regarding uh, diplomacy between the United States and China and the United States and India. Oh, to coin a phrase, shall we pivot to Asia, Sam? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. It would seem somewhat overdue. Yeah. Uh, and our regular listeners will recall that a month or so ago, uh, we discussed three large countries that sort of skirt the southern periphery of the Asian last ma- landmass when we talked about Turkey and Pakistan and Thailand. So now we'll go to the heavyweight nations of the landmass, which are China, uh, which where uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited last week, and then uh, India, the uh, prime minister of which was recently feted in the United States with a state dinner and a joint uh, an address to a joint session of Congress. Let's start with Blinken in China. This is essentially the thawing of a frozen year, right? The United States and China have had more or less a year where relations between the two governments have deteriorated to the point of being non-existent, really. Okay, now that's, I would say, too much of a stretch. It's First of all, it's more like half a year because we know that uh, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met at the G20. Met at the G20, and that was in December. Uh, and so that, that uh, now that's just one meeting. And Blinken was, of course, supposed to go to Beijing in February, but was his uh, trip was grounded by balloon gate uh which you know as much as it pains me to even think about uh i think was just a miscalculation and in fact president biden basically said the same thing this week he, he, he thought that the chinese had essentially lost control of the balloon and that it was basically an accident that that's always been what i thought about it mind you uh i might just because of my own personal predilections, be too quick to dismiss the, let's face it, Republican narrative that this was a nefarious plot by China to steal our military secrets, etc. Right, but that's always been my interpretation: is that it was just an accident, 
and it's embarrassing for China. And that kind of uh, would help explain some of their kind of petulant behavior since then. In hearing from Blinken in various interviews since the meeting, since his trip to China, to Beijing, it seems as though the biggest takeaway from this is that it happened at all, right? That it is the the phrase he uses over and over again is this is a work in progress. And we contrast that to the better part of a year, six plus months, in which relations had been not a work in progress. They'd been a work stuck. Um, Blinken indicated that certain contentious issues were raised and that there was no great resolution of any kind or no great breakthroughs. But by and large, he seemed to have secured the pledge of his counterparts on the Chinese side that future meetings across both governments would be scheduled. And also, it was custom, but not guaranteed that President Xi would meet with Blinken. And in fact, that did happen. But my understanding is that it was not uh, confirmed. And so there was kind of this opportunity to snub Blinken, that's but right. it did not happen. And she met with Blinken, and that's generally positive. Yes, uh, they met for 35 minutes. Uh, there was, in some of the sort of post-game commentary, you know, uh, a lot of the conservative American commentators made a big to-do about the seating arrangements and, you know, how this was disastrous for the United States. And again, perhaps I'm too quick to dismiss things like this. I thought it was much ado about nothing, honestly. Uh, but, you know, these people will always find something to complain about. Uh, and of course, uh, the one thing that everybody agrees that Blinken failed to secure was uh, a military to military sort of hotline, we might say, right? Uh, which that in, in specifically, he said it's a work in progress. Exactly. And uh, now I really hope that that can be established, right? Uh, but some of the, comment the commentators, very astutely, I think, pointed out that this is not something that we've habitually had with China, right? It's, it, you know, it's not that that's never happened, but it's not a thing, basically, right? And I think it, it it's worth pointing out that uh, the military to military hotline that we had during the first Cold War, which I guess we might need to get used to saying, uh, was not established until 1963 after the Cuban sorry with the Soviet Union after the Cuban Missile Crisis exactly right and now I think that that's not at all coincidental and uh and thank uh, God we've not had a Strait of Taiwan crisis exactly right and I uh mentioned this because John I know that I've said to you and I think I've said on this podcast that for me, and this is just my personal opinion, uh, the beginning of the war in Ukraine last year marks the sort of quasi-official beginning of a new Cold War footing. It's not the same as the old Cold War. There are obviously many differences, right? But for me, it's sort of analogous to the Korean War, right? Which was the first kind of hot military conflict of the first Cold War. And that started in 1950. And it wasn't until 13 years later that the military hotline 
was established between the United States and the Soviet Union. So, yeah, I hope we can have one set up with China. But the idea that we don't have one so far, only a year and a half into this a new Cold War, Cold War yeah. it's not at all outrageous. Right? I thought it, it's not. And I'm glad you bring that up. Um, one thing that Blinken indicated in his post-game interviews, if we're going to continue with this uh, very familiar metaphor for me, uh, is that he did indicate that his Chinese counterparts understood the importance of military to military communication. He he indicated that they agreed with him that above all else, we don't want to risk conflict due to uh, misunderstanding. Some stupid mistake. Yes, and we right. might. If hope- we're going to have a war, it's going to be for a good reason. I mean, listen, that is great news for me. Right? I think like, that's right. And yeah. hopefully it won't require something on the level of the Cuban Missile Crisis for the United States and China to decide that this would be a good idea. Right. right. Now, mind you, I think there's a sort of dance being done here on the part of the Chinese, right? Saying something like, well, this military to military hotline that you seem to want so much, that's something you had during the Cold War. We don't think we're having a Cold War with you. Why do you think that you're having one with us? And, you know, if you're in a position like Blinken's, you might at least be thinking to yourself, oh, for Christ's sake, can we please just not screw around here? Right. But let's, you know, uh, and of course, again, there are many differences between this Cold War and the last one. But, you know, let's just not again. There's no point in shilly shallying. But to cut to the chase, if I were President Biden and I were to meet with Xi Jinping at the upcoming G20 in September in New Delhi, uh, I might say something to him like, how about this? How about we have the military to military hotline, but don't tell anybody about it? That way you don't have to look like you're backing down. How about that? All right. Now, maybe that wouldn't work. Right. But I think it would be worth a shot. The problem is, by definition, we wouldn't know. (laughs) So, you know, uh, our concerns about this would remain unassuaged. So it's interesting you talk about the G20 meeting in September. There's also a big conference in San Francisco in November that some have said might be an opportunity for Biden and Xi to meet. Yes, that's the APEC summit, right? Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, failing the G20, that would all. But you know what? Let's shoot for both. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, the more the governments of China and the governments of the or government of China and government of the United States are speaking, the less likely conflict is. Right. That's, that's a right. general rule. Right. I would agree with that. Yeah. And, uh, and to be fair, there are some of the differences between this Cold War and the last one are very salutary, right? The United States has not sent any combat troops to Ukraine, unlike, well, whereas they said Vietnam many or Korea, Korea yeah. right? Uh, China is not arming Russia, whereas Russia was arming China in the Korean War, right? So uh, this uh, conflict so far is not on the same scale, Uh yeah, the proxies aren't as established. That's right. And uh, for that matter, uh, and this might uh, prove a, at some point a useful pivot to our discussion of India, 
but the the hot aspects of the Cold War uh, did not involve uh, the superpowers themselves. They were all fought on other people's uh, territory. And those other people now constitute the nations of what we would call the global South. And so when we talk about those nations really seeming to want to stay out of this particular uh, Cold War, you can understand why, right? Uh, for instance, uh, Prime Minister Modi was just here. Right? And of all the nations of the world, I would say his nation uh, can make the strongest case for being a spokesman of that global South. Um, and, you know, his country is not taking sides. And we can almost hear the global South saying, not us, right? If you guys are going to do this again, uh, leave us out of it. We right. won't for have the, it. For NATO, for the Soviet bloc, the Cold War was a success and that there was no nuclear exchange. There was no World War Three. Right, but for everybody, but for Southeast else. Asia, five million people died. So for yeah, Africa, right? right. You know, where uh, you had Angola, uh, on and on. You know, many different countries. Latin America, you had coups in Chile, etc. And civil strife, but, and yeah, and and so uh, it was again the nations of the what we now call the global South that really had to pay the price for the Cold War. Right. Uh, in fact, I would say that. Uh, right. Sam, how much fuel rationing did you or I endure to win the Cold War? Well, no. I mean, well, I guess in the 70s, you might have before. I was. Yeah. Born, and but, honestly, I would say that the but not like of, not the like of the Shah of Iran was sort of a byproduct sure. of the Cold War. It wasn't a, a result of any kind of direct conflict. But I mean, real sacrifices a population makes to win a war, like no, of course, like not, the United right? States did in the World Wars, right? Like, yeah, yes, that's right. You know, there was Vietnam. I mean, that was a, a major. There sacrifice was a draft on, yes. on the part of of the United States, but that could have probably been avoided. Uh, and candidly, if you want to take the United States body count versus the body count in Southeast Asia, it's, oh, it's, it's, it, it's nothing. Yeah, sixty thousand to four five million. Okay, that's it. that is interesting because India is positioned in a way that the global South has never been before. They're the fifth largest economy, they're the most populous nation on earth. One point four billion people live in India, according to uh, an estimate for two thousand twenty-three. The last census officially in two thousand eleven, according to Wikipedia, one point two billion. And so Modi, who is a nine-year prime minister, visits the White House. And there's a state dinner. And Modi is a guy who is autocratic, curious, yeah. you know, and has a shaky human rights record because he's essentially a Hindu nationalist. I would say he has a bad human rights okay. record. Okay. <laughs> now, that's just my personal opinion. No, that's fine. Um, not good. Right. And in fact, had been denied a visa to visit the United States in the past. Yes, that's when he was the uh, uh, head of the state government of Gujarat uh, back in the early part of this century. So now he's um, the head of the largest democracy in the world. Yes. Fifth largest economy, most populous nation. So, yeah, the global south, its biggest muscle to flex is India. Yes, and they've just surpassed China being the, the world's populous nation. That literally happened, I think, Two or three months ago, right? And uh, 
Uh, and they're a much younger nation than China demographically, which I think is much more important. Uh, China's right, we, population is actually shrinking. We like to talk about how much we don't like the term inevitability with regard to history. India actually has some inevitability on its side right now. Yeah, I mean, there are demography. certain things that just aren't going to happen unless there's a nuclear war or something, right? I mean, uh, uh, but uh, India is still a rising power. And I think that's uh, what uh, explains uh, his visit to Washington this week more than anything else. And again, his record on human rights is appalling. I'm sorry. Yeah, I want to point out that Maya Jasanoff uh, pointed out in a New York Times opinion essay that uh, India's broadest assault on democracy, civil society and minority rights has come under Modi, the biggest assault in the last 40 years. Yes, that's right. Uh, And um, so even though it's a democracy, it's not necessarily a liberal democracy in our traditional sense. No. And I think, uh, you know, more than one commentator has referred to Modi as an elected autocrat. And I think that's right. And since sort of along the same lines as Turkey, uh, er- Erdogan in yeah. Turkey, right, where he's very strongly cracked down on, on the free media, for example, he's muzzled the media to a very great extent. However, again, sort of like Erdogan, nobody really disputes that he's been legitimately elected. Uh, and they shouldn't dispute that because he absolutely has been. And India is still, despite all of this, it is a democracy. There's no question about that. These elections have been entirely fair. And Modi has legitimate appeal amongst his supporters. And I think one of the, the per, perhaps a silver lining here, is that he himself is much more popular than his party which has lost a couple of state elections this year. Uh, And he is 72 years old. Now, that's not especially old by world leader standards. At the same time, I can't think of many world leaders that are older than that, apart from Joe Biden, of course. Uh, And now, mind you, he's a very observant and pious Hindu, so... He leads a very healthy lifestyle. In fact, he took place. He took part in a mass yoga demonstration on the lawn of the United Nations earlier this week. Uh, Famously, uh, or rather uh, notably, there was no alcohol served at the state dinner because neither Biden right. nor Modi drink. They exactly. served ginger ale. Exactly. I was wondering what that was. Thank you for for because I said, well, what if if that's not wine in, in his glass? I wonder what it could be. Ginger anyway, ale. Uh, so he could live for uh, for quite some time to come. But like many autocratic regimes, uh, he there could be a succession crisis, right? Uh, autocrats are not generally in the habit of grooming successors because they can't imagine anybody apart from themselves actually being in power. And once you start to groom somebody as your successor, that person almost instantly becomes your rival. All right. So India is a giant democracy, but certainly an imperfect one with an imperfect leader, with an imperfect human rights record, to say the least. But they're a hugely important, not ally, but player with regard to the geopolitical strategy of Asia and, frankly, containment of China. I know people don't like to use that term, but I think that's what we're talking about here. I think it is, and it, and it fits our ongoing Cold War paradigm extremely well. So India has a tradition of what is not neutrality 
in a Switzerland sense, but something called non-alignment. Correct. Now, that term has evolved. I think the most recent phrase they used is strategic autonomy. Right. Uh, it's hilarious because what they're really saying is we will have no official alliances uh, because we don't think that's good for us. And hard to argue with that thinking. Um, but they have now agreed to take a bunch of defense technology from the United States, which is a, is a huge deal because historically they get their defense tech from Russia. Correct. And pr- prior to that, from the Soviet Union, right? Because even though they were non-aligned during the Cold War, they were a post-imperial former colony, right? And, and most nations that fit that description at that time were generally under the Soviet umbrella. Who were out uh, to smash imperialism. That's right. Uh, ostensibly, yes. Uh, but so, yeah, you're, I guess strategic autonomy, non-alignment, whatever you call it. But this is what where they've been ever since independence, essentially. Uh, and why not? They're an enormous country. They're much more successful now than they've been in the past. But I'm glad that you brought up the uh, the deal with General Electric. Mind you, it's only a memorandum of understanding. I like that so term, far, too. Right. Uh, shovels are not being put in the ground today. I can It's for fighter jet engines, right? GE yes. builds jet engines. Yeah, that's right. And I think that that's a sort of uh, really shrewd arrangement, because one of the problems with being a great customer of the Russian defense industry is that Russia probably doesn't have a whole lot of armaments to spare right now. In fact, I read in last week's issue of The Economist that Russia has already missed a couple arms deliveries that had been previously scheduled. And I think we all know why that is. Right. And right? it's not like India is going to go break their legs. Right. Exactly. It was just like, uh, and mind you, the American defense industry has some of the same problems we you know can barely manufacture arms fast enough right now for all we need to provide to ukraine and that's why the idea of general electric manufacturing the jet engines in india is kind of genius i think right it's like well we don't actually have to mind you we already provide india with a bunch of arms right but we don't actually have to make them you guys can make them. We'll just let you have the technology. I think that, I think it's fantastic, right? It's, it's whoever thought of that was, you know, was really inspired. One thing to keep in mind is India is strategically not aligned technically with anybody, but now takes armaments from the United States or is is uh, intensifying the arms trade with the United States. Uh, France is their second uh, biggest arms producer uh, or arms supplier, but. But as you think about, well, why is India arming itself so aggressively? They're the only folks in this whole conversation that have had skirmishes with the Chinese military, like in the 21st century. That's right. They've had border skirmishes as recently as what, 2020? Something like that, yeah. So as much as we want to, you know, worry about Taiwan and, you know, a plane came close to one of uh, the United States uh, military aircraft and... You know, the U.S. Navy ship was very close to a Chinese Navy ship. In the yeah, but South this is China. not Cuba in 1962, right? right. right. <laughs> India has shot at Chinese soldiers, and Chinese soldiers have shot at Indian soldiers. Oh, okay, so just to clarify, I think that the most recent skirmishes took place only with knives. Uh, because Good point. The, the, uh, <laughs> the troops on both sides of that border region uh, are 
so afraid of escalating into an all-out war that they've both sides have agreed to not have any guns in those border outposts. So okay, that's an important fight. note that I was I, I realized you've maybe mentioned that to me before, but the fact of the matter is there's been actual military violence Yes, between uh, and, China and India and in of course, very recent China memory. And India think of themselves as these ancient civilizations uh, on the Asian continent. And mind you, much as we've discussed with the, the Chinese-Russian relationship, they're going to be na- neighbors forever, right? Uh, there's, they're, they've got it. And I think this is why India takes part in things like the BRICS grouping, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Council, right? Because it's just better for them to have a forum in which they can speak with the Chinese over a table, right? Uh, Because if they're not there, then problems can arise, much less as we've been talking about with uh, the military-to-military communications between ourselves and the Chinese. But this arrangement uh, or meeting in Washington yesterday, There, we don't have anywhere near enough time to go into all the things that came out of it. The General Electric deal is just one thing. There's going to be joint United States-Indian uh, naval exercises in the Indian Ocean. That's a big deal, right? Uh, a number of other uh, uh, American manufacturers uh, are, you know, uh, are going to be op- uh, thinking about opening plants in India. We've already discussed Apple and p- p- people like this opening factories in India in, in the interest of diversifying supply chains. And so, you know, the idea that we shouldn't be doing this is, I think, just uh, kind of naive. Listen, India can say they're strategically autonomous if they're doing exercises with our navy. I mean, actions speak louder than words, right? Yeah. And let's be frank about it. Supply chain issues with India are less likely to be interrupted by any kind of skirmish for Taiwan, right? As opposed to if we're in a conflict Correct. with China. The other thing, one of the deals that came out of this, and I found this interesting because it's so uh, illustrative of how everybody's kind of dependent on China to some degree. Um, there was a deal between the US and India for chip making semiconductors, right? That's right. And India, I think they're primarily getting their chips now from China. Right. So it's definitely in India's interests to maybe not be reliant upon China, a, a country they've had military skirmishes with. That's exactly. So why should the United States not try try and take advantage of that? Sure. Right. And say, well, we've got semiconductor companies that we can, uh, you know, try and make up you know, some of the different, at least to, uh, to help you diversify your supply chain. Uh, and so uh, there are so many facets of this. Uh, that are appealing to both sides, that it seems only natural that this should uh, take place. I mean, there's too much pragmatism to get too bent out of shape about the human rights stuff. Yeah, but at the same time, there are other obstacles as well. India has been investing in its own infrastructure by leaps and bounds in recent years, but they've still got a long way to go. It's a big place. Yeah, any number of these factories could run into very serious just infrastructural obstacles to even getting built. Power supplies, uh, water supplies, uh, things of this nature. A couple of other things happened in India uh, just this week that I think are very illustrative of of exactly where they stand. First of all, more than 100 people died out of a catastrophic heat wave 
right, in which the temperatures are approximately the same as as the ones that we've seen recently in Texas, right? The problem is Texas has much better infrastructure for helping people cope with heat waves than India does. So the poor, the sick, the elderly, they just drop dead in the heat. Uh, And that's awful. Meanwhile, India, a couple of different Indian airlines signed deals with both Boeing, but predominantly with Airbus uh, to purchase a record number of airline airliners. Uh, And so India is a country where hundreds of people can drop dead from the heat because they're so poor. uh, But Indian airlines believe that they are going to need a whole bunch more planes because there's enough non-poor people that they're going to want to fly a bunch of places. And of course, more air, more airline trips means more carbon emissions, which means more rising temperatures, which, you know, so these things all are sort of in a great big ball of wax, but it's kind of the law of large outcomes. When you have the most populous country on earth, you're going to see basically every outcome, right? And especially one in, in the particular income bracket that India is in, which is neither horribly poor nor yet a rich country. Another note that came up with Modi's official state visit was the Indian diaspora and 4.5 million people in this country identify as Indian Americans. I was unaware that number was that large. Yeah, I don't think I knew it was quite that large either, but it's been growing a lot uh, in recent decades i mean certainly growing up in the bay area in the back end of the 20th century i going to public school i had a bunch of indian american classmates and and friends that that uh uh has only there it's not just there anymore i think that they they, uh you know there's a large tech industry in india a lot of very educated people that that populated the tech industry here in the united states uh but uh there are are now, I would say, Indian and other kinds of South Asian communities in many sure. areas of the United States, not just on the coasts. And they're generally uh, rather well-to-do, uh, and they have connections with the mother country because they're relatively recent immigrants. They generally have family. Uh, and in fact, uh, Prime Minister Modi made a point of saying, one of them is sitting right behind me. Kamala Harris. Yeah, Kamala Harris, right, whose mother was born in India. So uh, that's another point of connection. And and as I've mentioned on this show before, India is still a young country. And our country is nowhere near as old as China or Russia. There's demographic similarities that we have with India that those countries do not. Uh, And so... uh, if after Modi, India can revert to more of its liberal democratic heritage, which I'm not saying that's going to happen, uh, but but it could. It's yeah. There's no reason to to dismiss that possibility out of hand. That's all. And if that could happen, then the investment that the United States has made in India this week will have considered to be well worth it. And even if it doesn't, I think. Uh, the just making the attempt was probably at least worth a try. No show next week, right? I won't be. I, I will be traveling. But I promise you and our devoted listeners 
that I am excited to record a podcast two Fridays from now on the 7th of July. Make sure that's a Friday. 7th of July, I will be in Frankfurt, Germany. I'm excited for that also. The banking capital of Germany. And I should say also that we'll have occasion to return to India when they host the G20 in September. So we really just touched on the surface today, uh, as illuminating as today's conversation has been, mind you. Uh, But we'll look forward to hearing from John in Germany in a couple of weeks, I think. Should I do man on the street questions? Should I just feel like it? But you, uh, John, have you ever been to Germany before? Never. Nine. Okay, well, that'll be very interesting. (laughs) I'm I'm actually very excited. I am too. Uh, To say uh, specifically, I love... Beer and German style Pilsner is my favorite. So we'll, well start you're, there. You're, you'll be in good shape. Though. I think I will. Yeah. All right. Uh, questions, comments, suggestions, uh, story pitches, guest pitches, whatever you think. John Media at gmail.com. He's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. Have yourselves a wonderful weekend. Enjoy your holiday, everybody. 